Uh, this morning, we're going to be taking a break from our series in uh, Samuel um, because uh, many of the ladies are at the women's retreat, and uh, I didn't want them to have to feel like they needed to, uh, you know, catch up or, uh, or watch online or something later. So I figured we'd just take a, a break from that. Um, and uh, and then I, so then I have to figure out, okay, what, what am I going to preach on? Um, and, and I figured, well, let's just be in sync with them. And, and this weekend, their theme has been uh, rest. And so I thought um, I'd go ahead and, and do a, a sermon on rest. And um, back when I was an associate pastor and I had to do these kind of one-off sermons uh, all the time, anytime I was going to preach, I was, uh, had to, to preach a, just a one-off sermon. Um, I did several in a series that I was calling uh, functional theology. And functional theology meaning, um, you know, theology is what we think about God. It's what we know about God. And so um, if, uh, if we have what we know about God, and oftentimes uh, that just stays in our head, right? That's the kind of thing that if I gave you a, a theology quiz, even though you've never, you know, taken a Bible class or been to seminary or anything like that, like, even if that's not the case, you'd, you'd probably get it right. You'd probably get a lot of those things right. You have a lot of good theology, knowledge about God. But a lot of that stuff stays up here and it doesn't actually come down to our hearts and then to actually affect how we live, right? And so we have a lot of good knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily affect how we live. So our functional theology is that connection. How do we actually live um, out of what we believe. And, and so that's, that's where this series, and that's, I know that sounds like a term, I'm pretty sure I just made it up. Like, I, you're not going to go talk to somebody else and be like, well, am I, you know, we're talking about functional theology. It's not like a term that's used in seminaries or something like that. I think I invented it. And that's not necessarily a brag as much as a cautionary, a caution for you of like, don't think that that's, it's real. I don't know. It's, I just made it up. Um, okay, so functional theology of rest. What do we mean when we talk about rest? And we'll start by looking at, we got to start by looking at the Sabbath, uh, which we see God talk about to uh, Moses in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 18. Yahweh said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Okay, so this is uh, at the end of, notice the end there, uh, this is when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. He's giving them the Ten Commandments, and he says, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Above all. He gives the Sabbath top priority among the Ten Commandments, which should be surprising for us because uh, in the church, 
we give this, the Sabbath like the least priority. We basically say like, don't even worry about it. Like all the other Ten Commandments are very important, right? Honor the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, definitely don't murder. Definitely don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery. Children, honor your parents, right? And we, 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 we hit all of them really hard. But when we get to the Sabbath, we're like, you know, I mean, honor the Sabbath, but like, you know, rest if you can. That's just basically what it's saying. But like, if you got to work, don't worry about it, right? That's, that's really the attitude we have in the church for the most part is we could put the Sabbath way down the list of priorities to where like, you could skip it if you want. We do not take it seriously at all. Here, God says, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. He says it more important than any of these others. He says, this is a priority. The consequence for not keeping the Sabbath was the death penalty, right? Which he says twice. He says twice there that they have to keep the Sabbath and he twice tells them that if someone doesn't, you should kill them. They should be executed. Death penalty for not keeping the Sabbath. This is a big deal. So then we need to consider, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? Why, why is this such a big deal? What is the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, the purpose of the Sabbath, according to verse 13, is that they would know that Yahweh sanctifies them. Meaning, know that God sets them apart as holy. He sets them apart as holy. They are his people. It is to mark them, mark the covenant by keeping the Sabbath. It also most obviously provides a rest from work. Right, it provides a break from work, and humans are designed to, to need rest. Right? We need sleep. You also need to take a day off. We're designed to need rest, the way God created us. But also, and this is the piece that I think is mainly missing for us today, is that the Sabbath represented trust in God's provision. Um, now, in our society today, we don't think of it that way, right? We think of it as like we deserve a day off. We, in fact, deserve two days off, right? That's why we have the weekend. And this combination of the Sabbath and then this tradition of Sabbath rest on Saturday and, uh, and then having Christians observe Sunday as their holy day because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead, that's how we got the weekend to begin with. That's why we have two days off in our culture today is because of a combination combining those two things and going, well, there's going to be a portion of the population that's going to need to take Saturday off. There's a portion that's going to want to take Sunday off. Let's just say, hey, we all get two days off. Great. And so most of us probably view that as like a right. They're like, hey, I, and if I'm going to work on a Saturday, like, God forbid, like how dare someone make me work on a Saturday? They better pay me extra, Right? Let's get some overtime if we're going to work on a Saturday. But in an agrarian society, in a society that is uh, primarily farmers and ranchers, right? It's much harder to take a day off, right? It's much harder to take a day off in that society because there's always work to be done. If if you live on a farm, if you're a farmer, there's always work to be done. If if you're a rancher, there's always work to be done because there's always something that you could be doing to make things better. And so for people living in that kind of society, subsistence level, uh, farming and all this kind of stuff, 
to take a day off and go, you know what, I'm not going to work at all on this day. That represents your trust in your creator. You're trusting in him to provide. You're trusting in him when he says six days is sufficient for you to do all of your work. You're trusting in him, not yourself. Because yourself, you would say, no, I need to go do more. I need to go do more. And we certainly definitely have people in that position today where they, they have maybe a, a, a normal uh, job where they work 40 hours, but they add something else on because they think, well, I've got to make more. I've got to earn more. I've got to get on that hustle, get on that grind, you know, whatever, all that stuff that, that people say today where it's like, well, maybe I need to do more. Um, and, and, and that, again, can represent that lack of trust in God's provision to provide for you in six days of work. The thing that we see coming out of the Sabbath overall is that the Sabbath is a demonstration of trust and obedience by the people of Israel. When God institutes this for the people of Israel, it represents their trust in him to provide for them in those six days of work and their obedience to him, their reliance on him, their trust in him, that that is enough and that they will trust him in that, and they will obey him in that. Okay, that's the Sabbath as it's instituted in the law of Moses. Now we're going to jump ahead to Matthew, where Jesus talks about uh, rest and work in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. He says this, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Okay. I wanted to give you the full context of this passage, uh, but we're really going to focus on the end. We're going to focus on verses uh, 28 through 30. And that section starts off with Jesus saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. All who labor and are heavy laden, come to me. Now, that is not Jesus saying, you know, some of you are labor and are heavy laden and some of you sure got it easy. That's not what he's saying. He's not being exclusive here. He's saying all of you, because everyone labors and is heavy laden in some capacity simply because of the fall. Difficult work, problems that we face are the result of our rebellion against God, which we see in in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. This is just when God is talking specifically to Adam and giving him the consequences for his rebellion. He says this, because you have listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
the consequences of mankind's rebellion against God is difficult work, right? He says, in pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. He says, thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. So apart from the fall, before the fall, this was not the case, right? Adam and Eve were born into this peaceful, restful reality where there was not hard work where there were not problems that arose, right? When you tried to grow something, there weren't weeds that came up around them. There weren't uh, harmful plants. It was easy. It was natural. It came without extra effort. But he says, now it will be in pain that you eat of the, of the ground. Now thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And even as we've gotten away from that, right? Even as we've said now, okay, only some people in the population will actually do the farming, actually grow the food and all that. We'll do other things uh, and earn money and then be able to trade for those things. Even that, we've not been able to get away from this idea of thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. Because... Even as we've moved away from the actual ground and actual farming, we still find that work is difficult and we still find that problems arise, right? They've just become different kinds of thorns and thistles, right? Even to the point where we have digital thorns and thistles, right? When your computer crashes in the middle of a project, it's a digital thorn. It's a digital thorn. When your car breaks down, that's a digital, that's a, that's a mechanical thorn. Right? When, when these things, when things break and, and problems arise and things, things happen and you go, why is life like this? Why are things so hard? It's because of our rebellion. It's a consequence of the fall. Think about it. There's not a logical reason why these things should happen. There's not a logical reason why they can't build a computer that doesn't break. But they can't because of the fall. They will never be able to. They will never be able to create machines anything that's not going to eventually break down, eventually fail, eventually not work anymore because of the fall. That's the reality we live in. We can't get away from this curse. But Jesus calls those who are suffering due to the consequence of rebelling against him to come to him. He calls us to come to him so that he can give us rest. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this implies more than just a temporary rest, right? This is not simply getting enough sleep or taking a day off um, because you still have to go back to work in the morning or, or the next day. Jesus is implying that if we come to him, we can get out of the rest work cycle altogether. And we see this more clearly in the very next verse where he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay, Jesus isn't just asking, he's using this, he uses this idea of a yoke, uh, and just to make sure everyone's on the same page, a yoke is like what you put on a, a pack animal or like a, a, a cart animal to help them, have them pull, right? Either an oxen or, or uh, a horse or something like that. You put this yoke on them as a hook, them to the cart so they can then go and work. And so he's using that to describe our work, right? And he says, to, he doesn't just say, take off your yoke. He says, take off your yoke for a minute so you can rest, right? That's what we do right now, right? We work, and then we take off that yoke, and we rest, right? We either go home, we, we sleep, we maybe take a day off, but then eventually we got to put that yoke back on. He says, no, take that yoke off and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
He says, stop working for yourself, stop working for your human masters, and start working for me. And you never put that other yoke back on. You keep his yoke on. You take his yoke on, you learn from him. And then he sells himself as a better master by explaining, in the next line, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So I'm a better master. I'm a gentle master. I'm not a harsh taskmaster. I'm not a punishing boss. I'm gentle and understanding. Right? He says that he's lowly in heart, which implies his humility. It speaks to his humility, that he will meet us right where we're at, that he'll come down to us to our level, just as he did in the incarnation, becoming, taking on human form, humbling himself and taking on human form. And when we do this, when we accept Jesus as our new master, taking off our yokes and putting on his, we will find more than temporary rest. He says, you will find rest for your souls. He implies that we can get a permanent state of soul rest, deeper rest, truer rest than we find in our day-to-day life now. Because the reality is in Jesus, when we take his yoke upon us, when we trust him and obey him, the reality is that he has already done everything so we don't have to do anything. That's the message of the gospel is that because Jesus has done everything, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything at all. He has done everything. When we accept him as Savior and Lord, we are granted what the Bible calls righteousness, or we are justified. As we see in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It says, in him we are justified. In him we are made righteous. Now, when we talk about being righteous, it's, it's our right standing ultimately before God, but really before everybody, right? It's that idea that we are sufficient, that we are complete, that we're not lacking anything, that we are not in error. It's the things that we, the ways that we so often try to hide, right? It's the fact that when you get to, uh, you, you, you know, you have to go hang out with people. You got to go be around people. You're going to a party or you're going over to family uh, for dinner or something like that. And it's the fact that you sit in your car for a few minutes and just like take a deep breath and you like practice your smile. And you're like, okay, I'm going to forget all the things that are going on right now and just try to have like so that when I walk in the door and people say, how are you? I go, good, that's great. I'm doing Awesome. It's that fake, that fakeness, the things that we try to hide, the incompleteness that we, that we feel, the insufficiency that we feel, the lack of everything that we feel. That's 
that righteousness that we're lacking. And so often in our lives, we try to make up for it. We try to make ourselves good enough, either by earning enough money or getting successful enough, having enough friends, having enough status, whatever it is. We find all these ways, even possessions, owning things, looking good. We try to fill these things in to make ourselves think that we're righteous. We ultimately want to feel righteous, but if we can't do that, we at least want to make people think that we're righteous. And even if we wouldn't use that term, that's that feeling of completeness, of, of satisfactory, being satisfactory. Those things are the things that we want people to see. And ultimately, we want to feel. And we keep fooling ourselves into thinking that we can find it eventually. Right? That there's just something that we're missing. That we just could find that one thing that we need. If we could just get successful enough, or we could just make enough money, or we could just find the right partner, or whatever it might be, that piece that we're missing, that we can fill that, but ultimately it will always fail. And the only way we will feel complete, the only way we will feel righteous is when we turn our lives over to Jesus and recognize that because he has accomplished all of it, we no longer have to do any of it. And now all that striving, all that work, all that worry, we can set aside because we find our sufficiency in him. We find our justification in him. When we do this, we will find true rest. That's what he's talking about when he says we'll find this soul rest. Because we stop, we get out of this cycle and we find true rest, true peace in him. Because now you don't find real rest, right? Even things you think of as restful are not that restful. Right? Even, you know, you're stressed out, you're having a bad week, whatever, you're thinking, I think I just need some more sleep. Let me try to get to bed early. That doesn't go well, right? You lie awake thinking about all the things that, you're, that are bothering you. You wake up in the middle of the night thinking about those things. You have a restless night of sleep. You think, you know what? No, that's not enough. I need to go on vacation. I need to get a vacation. Because vacations are restful. No. Right? Like, I don't know if anyone's ever been on a restful vacation. This is a pretty rare to actually find a vacation that's truly restful. Certainly not when you have kids at all, but like ever. But like even when that's not the case, it's still like all of your travel has to go well. You have to have no problems with that. You have to, all your accommodations have to be okay. Things have to go well there. You have to good good weather, all of these things to then like actually be able to relax and have some refreshment is very, very difficult. And usually by the time you get back, you need another vacation from your vacation, right? It's very difficult because we're still experiencing these things. True rest is found in the peace that comes from working for Christ alone. We no longer have to do anything because he has done everything. To truly believe that, to truly believe that totally, that because Jesus has done everything, we don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go to work tomorrow. You don't have to do anything that you feel like you have to do. You don't in Jesus. You don't have to do anything. Maybe you're thinking of, well, I, you know, this on Thursday I've got to go to Thanksgiving and that means I have to see these family members that I don't want to see because we have conflict, whatever. You know, like whatever the thing that you can think about, but I have to do that. I have to do that. No, you don't have to do anything. 
You don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything you have to earn in Jesus. You are complete. You are sufficient. You don't have to do anything. And the amazing thing, when we truly find that peace, truly find that reality in Jesus, is that now we get to do things. It turns your have-tos into get-tos. Because we recognize what he's done for us. We want to do these things. We want to live for him. We want to submit ourselves to him. And so now we get to do those things. We'll look lastly at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13. The promise of entering his rest. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest be, there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united in faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said it. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains to some, for some to enter it, for those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appointed, appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by some sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, there is a lot in that passage. It's definitely a very complicated passage. We're not going to be able to cover all of it. I'm going to pull out the things that pertain to this idea of rest. And first off, we need to ask ourselves, what does he mean? What does the author of Hebrews mean here when he says uh, the promise of entering his rest? What does it mean to enter his rest? Well, in this passage, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And in that passage, the passage that he's quoting for the Israelites, 
entering his rest meant entering the promised land. It meant entering, living in, thriving in, possessing the promised land. That was the idea of entering his rest. Now, for us, as I mentioned last week, we can analogize this idea of the Israelites entering the promised land with our entering the abundant life that he has promised us. The abundant life God God's offers us uh, comes when we find the perfect rest in the gospel. So how do we access that rest and abundant life? Well, first off, he tells them, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So what does it mean to harden our hearts? What does he mean when he says, do not harden your hearts? Well, he means the opposite, which would be, be open to the call of God in your life, right? If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Be open to him. That means be open and ready to obey him in both ordinary and extraordinary ways. Right? That means do the things that you know he wants you to do. Right? It's the same way that I might tell my kids not to harden their hearts against me. And when they hear my voice, to listen and respond. Right? In both the things that they already know that I want them to do, and in also when I call them specially to do something. Meaning like you know, when I say, you know, Hey, you, should, you should listen to your mom and I, right? There's normal things of like, pick up after yourself and be polite, say please and thank you. You know, all of those things that, that they know already and want them to do. The same is true for us. There are things that we know God wants us to do. We should hear his voice and, and respond, not harden our hearts, do what he's asked us to do. There are also times when I want them to do something unique, Right, that, hey, we need to go and do this thing that maybe you've never even done before, and I want them to respond to me. Same thing with us. There are things that God asks us to do, calls us to do, that are unique. They're extraordinary. They're not the ordinary things. They're extraordinary. Still, if we hear his voice, do not harden our hearts. So what does that look like when we don't harden our hearts? Ultimately, it means trust and obedience. We bring it back to that idea of trust and obedience. We trust in him. What do we mean when we, tr we say trust? It's this is the idea of faith and belief, that we believe him, that we have faith in him. We trust him as our savior. We believe in his death and resurrection are sufficient for us. And then we also need to obey him. We want to show him obedience, which is in response to what Jesus has done for us, we obey him, we turn our lives over to him. That's the opposite of our sinful rebellion. It's the, this obedience that allows us to live that abundant life. So when we talk about these ideas of trust and obedience, which we already said were represented in the Sabbath. Remember we talked about the idea of the Sabbath, that it represented their trust and obedience to God. God wants our trust and obedience in him, our belief, our faith in what he has done for us, our trust in his provision for us, and then our obedience in response to what Jesus has done for us, that we would obey him. That's what we mean when we call Jesus our Savior and Lord. We talk about Jesus as our Savior and Lord, right? That I've made Jesus my Savior and Lord. Savior in that I trust, I believe in him as my Savior, that what he's done on the cross is sufficient to pay for my sins. I call him my Savior. That's trust. I call him my Lord. And again, that's when we use the term Lord, I always, I wish there was a better way for us to say that because it's really like a medieval term, right? You don't use that term in any, uh, anywhere else in your life other than here, right? You don't use that anywhere else. But when this 
term became popular when the Bible was first translated into English, it was a term people would use, right, for the person that they owed allegiance to, their Lord. That was the person that they obeyed, the person that they were committed to. And for us, that's what Jesus is. He is our Lord. He's our master. We obey him. We owe our allegiance to him because of what he's done for us. We willingly make him our Lord. Trust and obedience, Savior and Lord. But this offer is for a limited time only. Verse 13 tells us to exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does he mean, as long as it is called today? Well, today is called today, right? You would call today today. It's not yesterday, right? Today is today. What's tomorrow going to be when you get there? Today. And the next day when you get there will be today. And in two weeks from now, when you get to that day, you will still call it today. He's saying as long as you're alive, as long as you're living, as long as time is moving on, you have this opportunity to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin is deceitful. Sin is a good salesman. It it tells us there's something better for us out there. That actually you've got a better idea than God has. That actually you can provide for yourself. You can make yourself happy better than God can. And that's all sin is. It's a rejection of him as our Savior and Lord. It's a rejection of him and saying, no, you know better. You know better. That's, That's the whole idea of sin is simply that you know better than God and believing that lie. That's the deceitfulness of sin. But the promise of entering his rest still stands, he tells us, because we've not reached that deadline. It's not too late for anyone. Everyone is capable of entering his rest because it isn't dependent on us. It's dependent on him. It's not about what you do. It's not about you being good enough. It's about what Jesus has already done for us. He's already finished his work. Interestingly, this passage tells us God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The author of Hebrews notes that in that creation account, it says that he rested from all of his works, that he is truly done. It's part of the reason that it matters. Scripture tells us that even all of our, everything about us was accomplished before the foundation of the world, was determined before the foundation of the world. That God, re- that God rested from all his works. It's also worth noting that in the creation account, the seventh day does not have an ending unlike the previous six. Now, hang on with me, because this is a little bit hard to understand. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. This is the, the last of the, of the six days. God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now pause there. Okay, there was evening and morning the sixth day. The sixth day happens. There was evening and there was morning. God had done all of his things. There was evening and there was morning. Every previous day is just like that. It it says what God did on that day, and then it says there was evening and there was morning the the sixth day. The other days it says whatever day it was. Then we go to the seventh day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And it never says there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. Does not finish. So some rabbis, even before, even before Jesus, recognized this fact and thought, well, God is in a permanent state of rest. He is in this permanent state of rest. And then what does the author of Hebrews tell us here? That whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from all of his work, from his works as God did from his. He's saying when we enter God's rest, when we truly accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we believe that he has done everything and we don't have to do anything. When we truly put our faith in him, we trust and obey him, then we rest from all of our works. We're stopped trying. We're not working anymore. We're in that permanent state of soul rest, just as God did from his. We recognize that it has all been accomplished, all been finished by him. It means we recognize that everything we have comes from him, that he's sufficient for our salvation, that he's sufficient for our sanctification, and that the Holy Spirit enables our obedience. We'll end with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, put your trust in Jesus alone. Number two, obey Jesus as your master. And lastly, live a lifestyle of rest. Truly rest. Put your faith in what Jesus has done so that it's no longer about what we do. You don't have to do anything. You simply get to do things. And we live in that permanent state of soul rest because we're no longer burdened, no longer stressed, no longer having to prove anything or earn anything, but truly find rest in him. I'm going to pray here in just a second, and then we'll take communion together in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us, his broken body and shed blood for us. Um, And then we're going to forego a a closing song today because of the sound issues that we've been having. Um, But then we'll have a, a prayer team available right over here. They'd love to pray for you if uh, you'd like prayer for anything. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we thank you that we know we can have uh, a different kind of rest than the world offers uh, by truly resting in you. Pray that we would hold on to that and put our trust in you, and we would obey you because of what you have done for us. Pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.